Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Thomas Jefferson is obviously very highly regarded. Uh, the author of the Declaration of Independence, uh, the architect of Monticello, uh, a, a political philosopher, uh, a man of extraordinary influence, uh, but also a man of uh, large contradictions. Uh, my guest, Dr. Thomas Kidd, has uh, decided to give a good look at Jefferson in light of some of these contradictions. He's the author, most recently, of Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. But uh, Dr. Kidd has also uh, given us uh, outstanding books that we've discussed on this program before. Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father. Also George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father. And America's Religious History, Faith, Politics, and the Shaping of a Nation. You can follow him on Twitter at Thomas S. Kidd, K-I-D-D. And uh, Thomas, good to have you back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, Jefferson is a remarkable man, and it's commonly pointed out that he's a complex man with some uh, important contradictions that define his life. Take us back to his growing up years. What was it like in his home growing up? Well, he grew up in a a fairly conventional uh, Church of England family. Uh, So, you know, a, a pretty standard kind of Protestant upbringing, uh, and, and definitely very active in church, and he and, and his father both served in uh, church leadership lay positions. Um, and, and so I, I think that he is steeped in that kind of Anglican culture of colonial Virginia, uh, where, you know, he, he certainly shows no signs of ever having been, uh, you know, the most serious Christian you could find, but I think as a boy, he would have you know, been exposed to lots of biblical preaching mm-hmm. and uh, and language, and you know, the, the language derived both from the King James Bible, but also the Book of Common Prayer. Um, it is it's pretty hardwired into people like Jefferson, and so it, it it that kind of biblical language and biblical categories. Even though he he grows up to be uh, quite a, a skeptic about certain Christian doctrines, but mm-hmm. I still think that there's that kind of Christian imprint that stays with him intellectually for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, does he have a crisis of faith uh, early on in his life, or is, is, does his skepticism just kind of creep uh, up on him over the years? It seems to me that he is the type of person who, really, when he goes to college, he goes to the College of William and Mary, that he is exposed to skeptical thought and writings and teachers, and that that pretty well derails his traditional Christian faith. Um, I, I think that he goes through probably decades of not really being settled about what he did actually believe, mm-hmm. uh, but is focused probably more on what he doesn't believe. And so I, I think if he goes through a, a resolution, if not a crisis, it really actually comes pretty late in his life. It's actually, I think, when he's in his first term as president, um, that he gets exposed to the writings of key Unitarian uh, Christians, especially the uh, pastor and scientist Joseph Priestley. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's when you know Jefferson is you know in his 60s by that point, and he decides that he considers himself 
a Christian, but really of only an ethical sort, not not even considering the supernatural claims that Christianity makes about Jesus and so forth. Hmm. And and he was personally comfortable doing that. I mean, he didn't feel as though uh, somehow this idea of redefining Christianity was something that really wasn't his to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jefferson didn't lack confidence, that's, that's for sure. And, and, and so um, I, I do think it's important that he ends up with a small group of friends and correspondents that he feels like he shares uh, these kinds of views with. So it's not just him, yeah, okay. um, and, th- and that helps. Um, but but it's not long after that kind of Unitarian resolution that he goes through that he does compose his first edition of what's, what we call the Jefferson Bible, uh, which is not the whole Bible, but it's just his edition of the Gospels. And uh, it, it is shocking how bold he is about this revisionist work that he cuts out, uh, literally, with, with scissors, uh, the things that he doesn't believe are true in the Gospels, uh, including the resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I might be afraid I'd get blue-bolted for doing <laughs> this, but, uh, but Jefferson, you, you know, was, was confident enough that he could discern through sort of rational inquiry uh, what he thought was true and what was not in the Gospel accounts. And, and the, the second edition that he did of that Jefferson Bible, which he did around 1819, uh, survives, and we can see what what he thought was true and what was false in the Gospels, and the false, as he regarded it, he just cut out. Hmm. The, the, was this an anti-supernatural uh, bias, or did he have literary judgments that made him think that certain miracles were folk tales, or uh, what was operating in him? It's conventionally said that he just could cut out everything supernatural from mm-hmm. the Gospels, and that that's not technically true. I mean, it, it, anybody who's read the Gospels knows that it's sort of hard to <laughs> you know, meticulously because there's yeah. a lot of supernatural stuff happening there. Right. And, um, and but but he did tend as best he could to focus on Jesus's parables, mm-hmm. uh, all, all the ethical teachings and. Uh, a lot of things about Jesus's life that was not uh, making supernatural claims, um, but but of course I, d- I don't want to downplay either the, the naturalism of of the Jefferson Bible. I mean, you know, the last verse is they you know they rolled the great stone in front of the sepulcher and went away. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, you know, there's no there's no resurrection, and so you know we can debate about just how naturalistic it is, but. He, he leaves out the the most important parts, and yeah. you know, in yeah. my view, as a Christian. And so, how then did he regard the historical Jesus? How, how did he think? Because he obviously thinks Jesus is a historical figure. Did he have any kind of attachment to him? Well, I think that this is what changes for Jefferson between his kind of early adulthood and, and later adulthood is that. He always thinks that Jesus is a historical figure and is an important moral teacher, but I think as a young man, he believed that Jesus was just one of a number of important moral teachers and philosophers from the ancient world, and that the, you know, the pagan Greeks you know, had a, a lot of contenders uh, as far as very important teachers, and that Jesus was a kind of moral reformer, 
in a Jewish context and that he, he taught very important things. Um, but, you know, not the Son of God, not the greatest moral teacher. And, and he never comes to believe that Jesus was the Son of God or divinely inspired. But he, the Unitarians, uh, you know, do convince him that Jesus was the greatest moral teacher mm, in okay. world history, and, and, and that Jesus's ethic of neighborly sacrificial love uh, is is superior to say the you know the Epicurean teachers of mm-hmm. uh, Greek antiquity. So so I mean he he definitely believes that Jesus is is a real historical figure, and that we have some reliable records about Jesus in the Gospels, uh, but that the the supernatural stuff basically he thinks was just tacked on later by you know priests, which to him is a very bad word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know who are who are looking for power and money, and they and so they tell people that Jesus rose from from the dead. Yeah. Hi, speaking of that, uh, what was his attitude towards uh, Catholic Christianity? He was uh, sort of conventionally anti-Catholic. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, most of the Protestants at the time of the founding had you know views that we would consider to be anti-Catholic. Yeah. Uh, today, sometimes they were ferocious, and then, and then people like Franklin, I think, especially who spent a lot of time around Catholics, tended to be, you know, a little more favorable. Um, Jefferson, I think, associated Catholicism uh, with that kind of hidebound traditionalism that mm-hmm. he thought had ruined Christianity, um, and, and so he he tended to think more favorably about Protestantism, but basically thought that. Protestants had generally not gone far enough in mm-hmm. reforming the faith or getting it back, as Jefferson saw it, to Christ's original teachings, which Jefferson just thought were only ethical and none of this stuff about Jesus being the Son of God. So, I mean, he, he in that way, I, I think, you know, he spends very little time around Catholics, except when he's in Paris. Uh, but but you know to the extent that he knows about it, he he tends to associate Catholicism with just you know pointless traditionalism and and mythology. Mm-hmm. Does he sustain conversation with any uh, peers on religious and spiritual matters over the course of his life? I know he has correspondence with uh, John Adams, but I mean, is there are there any particular uh, clergy? who he has long uh, conversations with. He uh, is is deeply influenced by Joseph Priestley, the yep. Unitarian pastor and scientist. That relationship does not last very long because Priestley dies. But but I would say probably that's the it, it's just a correspondence relationship. And then Jefferson reads everything that Priestley ever wrote. Right. Uh, and is, but is deeply impacted okay. by that, and, and and Priestley is a pastor, um, but but of Unitarian uh, sort, and and but there are others. I mean, there's intriguing relationships. Like he has a very long time friendship with Charles Clay in Virginia, who was an evangelical pastor. Mm-hmm. It's sort of surprising. You would think this is exactly the sort of guy that Jefferson doesn't want to be friends with, right? But, right. But 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 he was friends with him by you know for fifty years. Uh, that it's one of his longest standing friendships ever, hmm. um, and they end up being neighbors in Virginia for a long time. And uh, they they have a very uh, you know they talk about 
you know, food and, and just, you know, th- on things on the farm and things like that. And, and it's, so it's, it's, it's a close, warm, personal friendship and they're neighbors and they seem to talk a lot. And, and, but, you know, most of those conversations are lost to history. You know, you kind of wonder if they ever talked about Jesus and so forth. But, we, you know, most of that we just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. My guest, Dr. Thomas Kidd, we're looking at Thomas Jefferson. It, our focus is his uh, complicated relationship with uh, faith, uh, his understanding of Scripture, is the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus. We're going to continue. And, of course, many people think that Jefferson's greatest contradiction was as author of the Declaration of Independence and also as a lifelong slaveholder. I'm Al Creston. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Thomas Kidd, author of Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Um, of the many great perplexities uh, of Jefferson's life, probably the, the most striking one is that for all of his rhetorical and political work and skill in the cause of human liberty, he was, in fact, uh, a plantation owner and uh, had over 200 slaves that he never did uh, release. And so, Thomas, tell me a little bit about slavery in the life and imagination of Thomas Jefferson. What what was slavery to him? Uh, it was economic uh, lifeblood for him, for sure. I mean, he, he was, um, from an early age uh, as an adult, is... is He's inherited uh, slaves and uh, debt from his father-in-law, mm-hmm. um, and and that's that experience um, by the 1770s. I think it really puts a permanent imprint on his personal and financial life. That his his personal life is dominated by slave owning and trying to make his way as a, mostly a tobacco farmer. Uh, which he's never very good at, uh, and 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 then indebtedness, which is a, just a crippling presence in his life that really gets worse uh, as he uh, gets older. Um, but but it all starts, you know, with with this pretty sub- substantial inheritance that he gets from his father-in-law, um, and, and and so Jefferson is theoretically opposed to. Uh, slavery as being immoral in uh, Christian categories and also the categories of the Enlightenment, which he very much considers himself to be a, uh, a figure, an exemplar of. Um, and, and he's not unusual in the sense that there were, there were a number of the Founding Fathers, especially in the South, who owned slaves but also would readily admit that slavery was at least not ideal um, and that it, it you know, bore you know, bad habits and dissipation among the slave owners. Uh, and they, they sort of thought, well, we wish we could do something about this, but we're, we're you know, as Jefferson put it later, we have the wolf by the ears. Mm. We can't safely let him go. We can't safely hold them. I mean, it, we're, it's this paradox that, that they're dealing with. And so, you know, Jefferson in notes on the state of Virginia, uh, he readily admits that slavery is wrong and he even talks providentially, sort of strangely, for Jefferson that he thinks it's going to elicit the judgment of God on America hmm. for continuing to own slaves. 
But when it comes down to his political and personal life, he, he just really doesn't do that much to curtail slavery. And on a personal level, uh, especially later in his life, there was just no way that he could actually take any action against, you know, to free his slaves, most of his slaves, because he was just a financial wreck. And so that he, there's no way he could contemplate it. Hmm. Was he, I mean, was when you say he was a financial wreck, was that because he wasn't a very good tobacco farmer, or was it because he wasn't a very uh, careful steward of his uh, finances? Uh, was he a big spender? <laughs> I guess that's what I'm asking. He, he, he was a big spender, and okay. he was also not, I mean, I mean, it's tough business being a tobacco farmer in the late 1700s, mm-hmm. um, you know, even people like Washington, who were who was somewhat better at this sort of thing, you know, struggled with debt. Um, almost all of the Virginia planters were in fairly serious debt. But, mm, but okay. uh, Jefferson went to a, a, a much deeper level of, of indebtedness and, and financial turmoil. Uh, and I think that it is because he really struggled to live within his means in any kind of reasonable way. Uh, and you see it, for instance, in uh, in Monticello. Uh, you know, he he builds uh, the first Monticello and is not satisfied with it uh, for, for because of its size, and he wants to, to develop something that's more um, architecturally splendid. And so he tears down the first mansion and builds another one. And about as soon as he's done with the second Monticello. He starts a, a lesser-known mansion down at Poplar Forest, down around Lynchburg, uh, that he then styles as sort of his more peaceful retreat. Um, and you just think, now, somebody who's in terrible debt, who's always <laughs> talking about how he needs to free himself from this debt. I mean, if you had a friend like this today, you would have an intervention. I mean, <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, he, he really struggled, I think, with living realistically. Uh, in, in light of the fact that he he styled himself as, as this sort of enlightened gentleman, who really had a hard time saying no to just you know his dreams of of you know architectural and enlightenment and and wine and books and I I sort of approve of the overspending on books. But, but, uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, he, yeah, yeah. It was it, he, he really a lot of his life was just financially out of control. Yeah. Um. So, does he think that's how? So, as time goes on, and he looks at the nation developing and moving uh, westward, does he foresee a time when slavery will be no more? How does he expect it will end? He thinks that slavery probably will end at some point, um, and. Uh, he the way he always explains it is that um, he would like to see emancipation happen, but that there has to be some plan in place uh, to know what to do with the freed people. And mm. so that you would never want to have just mass emancipation all at one time. Uh, and, and he really feared that that would lead basically to a kind of genocidal race war. Uh, because he, and one of the things he knew was wrong about slavery is that the slaves hated being slaves. Yeah, and he yeah. thought, you know, that generations of resentment has built up, and and if you free these people, they'll they'll be civil war in America over race. 
So he really had a pretty grim view about you know, what what it was like for the slaves and what they thought about white people. Uh, and, and so he, he thought, you know, if there was a plan for gradual emancipation, probably compensation for the owners of the, you know, their loss of property, and then most importantly, figuring out how to get the freed people out of the United States because he thought they can't stay here or you're going to be risking, you know, d- this utter destruction. Uh, and and so he he really believed that there had to be some plan for colonization of the freed people mm. somewhere out of the United States. And he, he said he would say consistently, if you can get all of that in place, then we'll be ready uh, for emancipation. But it was just uh, you know an ever extending horizon that politically you know he he, he just thought I don't I don't know when we're ever going to get there. So he he didn't think so he didn't have any integrationist or assimilationist ideals for uh African slaves in America. Uh well of course that that's an extremely complicated question because it, you know we we are almost certain now that he's having a sexual relationship with Sally Hemings. Right. That, and that's way. actually that's I was moving towards that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but he he actually notes on the state of Virginia, he said some things about sexual intermixing between whites and blacks that are really just hair raising, uh, racist stuff mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. about blacks and why it would be disastrous for whites to intermix with blacks because of blacks' inferiority, um, and he compared um, blacks to orangutans, and I mean it it really was awful. Stuff. Was it awful um, at the time too? It was some pretty exotic stuff, even for the time. Now yeah. there there was some some sort of racial quote science at the time that he was somewhat echoing about. You know, he's speculating about. He just assumes that African Americans are an inferior race, right? And so some of it is he's kind of speculating scientifically, even theologically. He proposes the idea that maybe blacks and whites were not created by God at the same time, yeah, and, and, yeah. or the same place, and maybe that accounts for what he saw as blacks' inherent inferiority. And of course, traditional Christians said, "Well, that means that you don't believe in the Genesis creation narrative." I right. mean, right. That, right. that was not that, that was you know even for you know white racists at the time, and they're they're not going to go for that, and so so. Uh, he, he, it's all in that context of he's sort of musing about why is it that whites and blacks are so, so different. So no, he was definitely theoretically not keen at all on white and black racial inter- intermixing. Okay, so that leads then to the question about Sally Hemings. Who was she? How certain are we of the relationship? Uh, so tell me a little bit about her. Sure. So he, uh, she, she was part of a of the fan the Hemings family that he had inherited um as as slaves and uh and and so uh as a as a child he she was of no interest to him at all but then she came as one of his household slaves uh to Paris uh they they were separated by about 30 years in age uh, and so she was a teenager and he was in his 40s um but we we think probably that their relationship started while uh, they were in Paris together, um, and the, of course for 
the longest time, uh, historian, most historians of Jefferson would just not even touch this allegation. Now, the allegations started to come out in the newspapers in 1802. Mm-hmm. So this is not, you know, what you would call revisionist history. Right. Of just you know looking back and kind of making this up. I mean, it, the the allegations went public in 1802, and and people would even talk about it occasionally in letters. About you know, there were occasional sources where people would visit Monticello, and they would say, yeah, these rumors about Sally Hemings are true. But but Jefferson would never address it uh, directly, either in public or private. Um, and, and so historians for the longest time didn't really know what to do with this. But then uh, famously in the late 90s, there were these DNA tests. And you, you have to be very precise about what the DNA test proved. It, it proved that there was, uh, that a Jefferson male uh, fathered one of Sally Hemings children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it just didn't comment on, on her other children. Um, but that basically, the the apologists for Jefferson and up until that point it had often uh, pointed to other men who were not Je- Jefferson relatives uh, as the likely culprits uh, but but um, that brought it basically down to two uh, people who could have been the father of this child which is Jefferson and his brother mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, you know one of those two Jeffersons spent an enormous amount of time alone with Sally Hemming yeah and that was Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, you know, given the fact that the allegation was made at the time, uh, in, you know, in public and in private, from multiple sources, including uh, Sally Hemings' children, who, you know, stated matter-of-factly, mm-hmm. you know, my mother was Thomas Jefferson's concubine, Yeah. Uh, that, that, you know, once the DNA test came out, uh, virtually all Jefferson experts said, you know, that the evidence is just very yeah. heavy in in favor of this relationship having happened. Did he give, show them any preference in his will? It, both in his will and also before that, uh, it, it was quite conspicuous that the, the, the children that he did, the, the slaves that he did free, uh, we think were probably disproportionately his own children. Gotcha. Uh, and, and so it was Sally Hemings' children that tended to be freed, either by letting them run away or by stating it in, in his will. Yeah. Thomas, thanks. Uh, great job. Uh, really appreciate the work and hope we talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you very much.